You are listening to the 10-Minute Medic, the podcast for busy paramedic students. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Young. This week's lecture is going to be a two-part lecture. This week, we're going to take a look at the anatomy and physiology, as well as some of the challenges that you may face with the traumatic airway. Next week's podcast, we'll take a look at how to address some of these very challenges that you may face when dealing with the airway of the trauma patient. The average human being will take in about 500 milliliters of air with each breath. Only about 350 milliliters of this air will reach the alveoli where gas exchange takes place. The rest will reside in the bronchi and the trachea. No gas exchange takes place there, therefore it is called the dead space. The process of breathing is a matter of changing pressures. The diaphragm is the main muscle of respiration. It's very thin and lies just inferior to the lower lobes of the lungs. As the diaphragm contracts downward, the intercostal muscles of the ribs now begin to contract, pulling the rib cage up and out. This causes the decrease in the pressure within the lungs of about 5 millimeters of mercury. Because of this, the air flows into the lungs. In relation to the entire process, this is the active phase of breathing. Exhaling is the reverse of the process and is normally known as a passive phase. The diaphragm begins to relax, moving into more of a superior position. At the same time, the intercostal muscles relax, bringing the ribcage back in towards the core of the body. This increases the pressure inside the lungs by about 5 millimeters of mercury as compared to the outside atmosphere. Because the pressure is greater in the lungs than in the outside atmosphere, the air flows out. It's important to remember that it's not squeezed out, but a change in the pressure causes it to flow outward. This will be very important when we begin talking about chest wall injuries and the problems that it can bring to the ventilatory status. In order for the breathing process to take place effectively, the chest wall must be intact. If the patient suffers a wound that opens the chest directly to the outside atmosphere, air will follow the path of least resistance during the breathing process. For example, if a patient is sought in the chest, and the wound remains open, every time the patient takes a breath in, air will try to enter through the gunshot wound in the patient's chest. If enough air resides within the chest, it will eventually begin to impact the lung tissue by causing it to collapse. This is known as a tension pneumothorax. Gas exchange takes place in the alveoli. The alveoli themselves are grape-like clusters that if they were flattened out would cover the same surface area as that of a tennis court. They're surrounded by capillaries that allow the red blood cells to pass over the alveoli in a single file format during which the gas exchange takes place. The red blood cells are high in carbon dioxide since they've picked up this waste product as a result of aerobic metabolism from the cells throughout the body. The air in the alveoli is high in oxygen, about 21%. The principle of diffusion states that gases will flow from an area of higher concentration to one of lower until their pressures are equal. This is what allows a higher pressure of oxygen to diffuse into the red blood cell and the higher pressure of carbon dioxide to move into the alveoli and thus expel to the surrounding air via exhalation. Situated within the red blood cell is a protein known as hemoglobin. Hemoglobin has a natural affinity for oxygen and will carry four molecules of oxygen for each molecule of hemoglobin. This bit of anatomy is important to remember if you have a patient who is losing blood from trauma or any other cause. As your patient is bleeding out, the hemoglobin, also known as the oxygen-carrying molecule, is also leaving the body. With enough blood loss, your patient becomes hypoxic. 
When you're performing the assessment of your patients, you should always check the rate, rhythm, and quality of the patient's breathing. This will help you to assess how well a patient is taking air in, if diffusion is taking place adequately at the alveolar level, as well as if oxygen is being delivered and waste products being removed at the cellular level. Without proper oxygenation, aerobic metabolism will begin to fail and energy production will be negatively impacted. This will cause your patient to have to revert to anaerobic metabolism. This is a much less efficient manner of energy production that can lead to an excessive amount of waste products. The result is that your patient becomes acidotic and begins to suffer. The process by which the human body is oxygenated is summed up by three different phases. First, external respiration. This happens at the level of the alveoli and involves transference of gases, including oxygen, from the atmosphere to the red blood cells by way of hemoglobin. The two major gases found within our atmosphere include oxygen at 21% and nitrogen at 79%. When we administer supplemental oxygen, we increase the pressure within the alveoli. As a result of this pressure, the amount of oxygen that is available to be transferred to the hemoglobin also increases. Oxygen delivery comes about as the transfer of oxygen molecules to the hemoglobin and travel to the various cells of the body. Oxygen consumption is defined as the total amount of oxygen consumed by all cells of the body in 60 seconds. It's dependent upon how well the heart is functioning and providing an adequate cardiac output, as well as an intact vascular system to deliver the red blood cells. Internal respiration is also known as cellular respiration. This happens as the oxygen moves from the red blood cells into the individual cells themselves. This oxygen coupled with glucose is then utilized to produce energy. It's important to remember that the delivery of oxygen and glucose to the cells happen in a similar manner in which it's picked up from the alveoli, in that cells get their nourishment from capillaries that allow red blood cells to pass by them in a single file format. An increase in the amount of fluid that is found within the walls of the alveoli, the capillary walls, or the tissue cell wall can hamper this exchange. According to your PHTLS text, overhydration of the vascular space with crystalloid IV solution begins to leak out of the vascular system into the interstitial space within about 30 to 45 minutes after administration. As a result of this, metabolism is negatively affected. The administration of additional oxygen can help to offset this problem. The best route to go, however, is the judicious use of IV crystalloid solutions. If a patient has a neurological problem, whether caused by trauma or medical, it can have a negative impact on your patient's ventilatory status. This can come about as because of an instruction to the airway, usually by the tongue, or by a decreased level of consciousness. When assessing your patient, be sure to check the airway for things such as blood, vomitus, teeth, and bone fragments, and any other foreign body airway objects. Management of the airway in the trauma patient can present some real challenges for the paramedic. For example, teeth can become dislodged and travel down into the trachea itself. Trauma, either direct or indirect, to the neck can cause crushing of the larynx resulting in swelling of the trachea with resulting airway occlusion. The most common types of airway obstructions in trauma patients include bleeding and vomitus. Punctures to the trachea may result in air escaping, forming subcutaneous emphysema. There's been much made about the dangers of overventilation of your patient. Hyperventilation is defined as a process by which the removal of carbon dioxide exceeds its production. 
This condition known as hypercapnia or decreased carbon dioxide levels. When seen in trauma patients, hyperventilation is almost always caused by the healthcare provider. It's rarely a natural occurrence. Most of the time it's because we're ventilating our patient too fast or delivering tidal volumes of over 500 milliliters of air or a combination of both of these. The research shows that head injury patients have a much better prognosis if managed with simple airway procedures rather than with endotracheal intubation and hyperventilation. Part of the rationale for this is that as time progresses, the maintenance of a good seal against the patient's face when using the bag valve mask begins to decrease. This allows some of the oxygen being delivered to leak out. However, once the patient has an endotracheal put in place, a greater volume of actual air is delivered to the alveoli. This leads to an elevation of the carbon dioxide level, which results in vascular vasoconstriction within the brain. This results in decreased oxygenated blood flow to the brain tissues. It's important for you to keep in mind that for the most part, we place our trauma patients in a supine position. Doing this can cause the tongue to fall back into the posterior part of the pharynx, causing it to block the airway. In addition, Patients often have serious facial trauma with massive bleeding, and these will always pose a huge problem as far as being able to keep up with the suctioning and thus keep the airway clear. One of the best ways of assessing your adequacy as well as whether or not you have a good ventilatory process going on is by looking at the rise and fall of the chest. The best way to become familiar with how much a patient's chest should expand and contract is by assessing it on every single patient that you come into contact with, whether they have trauma or not. In addition, if you see their chest rise only on one side, it could mean that your patient is suffering from a pneumothorax. This condition, a pneumothorax, will be covered in a later lecture. Luckily for both you and your patients, most of the time the airway can be managed with simple skills. It's important for you to weigh the benefits versus the risk of when you're moving to more advanced skills in equipment and maintenance of the airway. The use of simplest tools that are of the most effective of the situation will generally be the best for your patient.